Good afternoon. Welcome to my Parsha Shir. Such a pleasure to be with you again. We're going to talk about uh, Parsha's Tetzaveh. That's this week's Parsha. And we're going to begin by uh, looking at the very first posuk. I'm going to be focusing, as I've been doing over the past several weeks, I'm going to be looking at my grandfather's Sefer, Mikdash Halevi. And uh, we're going to look at some of the Divrei Torah that he, uh, that he recorded, he gave in his Shi'urim, which are recorded in his Sefer. It's a beautiful Sefer. And uh, I know that quite a few people have been in touch with me and have actually obtained the Sefer since I began focusing on this Sefer uh, um, a few weeks ago. The Ato Yisrael, says the Posuk, to the beginning of the Parsha, um, command, instruct, uh, the children of Israel, the Jewish people, the take very pure oil, uh, olive oil, kosis la moer, in its purest form for lighting, lahalos ner tomid, so that you can light the neros, the lights, the flames of the menorah. That's how the parsha begins, with an instruction of of the actual material that was used the olive oil that was used to light the menorah. It says Rashi, Perish Rashi, Kosis. What does it mean? The word Kosis has to have a meaning. What does it mean? Hazesim haya koisesh b'machteshes. That's what he tells us it means. It means that the olives were hand, uh, they weren't ground in a grinder, you're going to see in a minute. They were put into what's, uh, it, they were hand ground or they were, uh, um, they were squashed, I guess, some type of process in which the oil was extracted, but it was done by hand. The machteshes, pestle and mortar, it's a, it's a different type of system that you do by hand. They didn't put it into a mill. How does one normally make oil? You put whatever is the material that, whatever, um, seed or plant or whatever it is that contains the oil, you put it into some type of uh, mill and it gets professionally ground in a machine. It's a technical process. But here, the oil was ground by hand, it was the olives were hand ground. So there shouldn't be any sediment. Because if you grind it by hand, I guess it's a quite a different process. And there's no sediment in the oil. And after the very first drop came out of the olive or olives, and afterwards they put them into the grinder, into the mill, and they would be professionally ground in a sort of commercial process. This secondary oil, after the first drop had emerged, it is possible. It is prohibited to use that to, uh, for the oil to light the flames of the menorah. The kosher limenochos, however, for the korban mincha, which was the offering that was brought very often with other offerings, but sometimes on its own, a korban mincha is a flour offering. How is the flour mixed into to becoming some kind of dough? It was mixed with oil, with olive oil. So the olive oil that's the secondary oil, that's okay for menachos, for the korban mincha. The ultimate form of purity is la moer, for lighting. Says Rashi, kosis is not for korban mincha, kosis is only la moer. 
Okay, interesting, right? Vehine says the Mikdash Alevi. If you want to know where Rashi got this information from, it's actually a Gemara in Menachos. Shom Isa, Av Kala Menachos Hoyu, Bedin Sheit Anu Shemen Zayzoch. Even though every Korban Mincha, really, in reality, if you think about it, should have required the ultimate form of pure olive oil. Why is that? If you're going to think of the menorah, menorah, what was the oil used for? It was used to burn, it was used to create a flame, it was fuel for a fire. It's not for achila, it's not for eating. It needs the ultimate form of pure olive oil. A korban mincha, which is for eating. It's a kalvachoymer. If the oil that you use for lighting a flame had to be the purest form of olive oil, I mean, obviously this is oil that was used in the service of the Beis Amikdash. If the oil that's used for lighting a flame is the purest version, is the ultimate version of that oil, then certainly if it's going to be something that you eat, surely that should be oil that's of the purest form. Talmud Loimar. So therefore we need a posuk, And the posuk tells us, this is the source text, Zoch kosis la mo'er. The word la mo'er teaches us that it was only necessary to create this ultimate form of purity for oil when it came to la mo'er, for lighting the menorah. Ve'ein ze kosis la menochos. It doesn't need to be this ultimate kosis version of olive oil for korban mincha. And if you look in, in Daf Pevov, Omad Base, the Gemara explains, what is the reason why the Menachos, the Korban Mincha, did not need Kosis? The Torah was concerned about the, um, of course, if there's increased manpower involved in the creation of something, it's going to be more expensive. And the Torah was concerned, or God, Hashem, is concerned, not to demand too much of the Jewish people. And if they have to create a kosis la mo'er type oil, also for kosis la mincha, for the menachos, then it's going to be very expensive for them. It's, it's hard enough for them to create that oil, expensive enough to for them to create that oil for the lighting of the menorah. But if it was demanded, if it was required, if it was mandated for all the menachos, that would be so expensive for the Jewish people who bring a korva mincha, and therefore it was not demanded. That's what the Gemara says in Menachos Daf Peivov Amad Beis. Elo shekan says the Mikdash Alevi. We have a bit of a problem with this because this throws up an issue. What's the issue? Why is it that the Torah is particularly concerned about the expense that would be incurred with the creation of oil for Menachos? but was not too concerned when it came to creating that oil for the menorah. Surely, if Hashem is concerned that the Jewish people shouldn't spend too much money, that things shouldn't be too expensive, he would be equally concerned about the creation of oil, how you extract the oil for the menorah as well. Why not? 
Because if it's so expensive, why would Hashem demand the most expensive form of oil that, uh, to be used for the lighting of the menorah? We see that obviously, that the Torah doesn't want the Jewish people to have to incur such great expense, but it seems to be limited only to Korban Mincha. Why is, it, why is the oil for the menorah not included in that concern? Why, when it comes to the menorah oil, does the Torah demand that we use the most expensive type of oil? The purest form of the pure. Which is completely clear and free of any type of sediment or impurity without thinking in for one second the Torah doesn't think that the Jewish people are going to have to spend so much money to ensure that every single day that the menorah would need to be filled with this extremely expensive type of fuel, the olive oil that is called kosis. The Nira Loima says the Mikdash HaLevi, that the fact is, Korban Mincha is symbolic of the Achila, the, um, as it were, the eating of, the, of Hashem. It's not really eating of Hashem, but it's symbolizing that type of thing. And the concept of offering this cake offering, that's what it was. It was flour together with oil, it was baked. Offering it, it's, it's symbolic of food, food and drink, of something that needs to be eaten. And within this, relating to this, the Torah is teaching us, We should demand of ourselves the nicest possible thing, so the Torah demands that we make do the nicest thing. It has to be pure olive oil. It has to be wonderful flour. It has to be a wonderful gift that you give in this sacrifice, this cake offering that you offer as a sacrifice in the, in the Beis Hamikdash, in the temple. But we need to be concerned. We need to at least be aware of the fact that it shouldn't be the ultimate. Because when it comes to inyonim gashmiyim, and we're talking about food here, what are we talking about? The Torah wants to tell us, Don't always look for the best of the best. Don't seek out the most materialistic version of the food that you put in your mouth. The ultimate version of something is not something that we should be seeking. And you see that you bring a carbon to Hashem, it's a carbon mincha. The carbon that you bring in the Beis HaMikdosh, and it's beautiful, it's Shemen Zayis Zoch, but it's not Kosis. It's not the ultimate. Do you know why? Because it's somehow, even though it represents food, we know Hashem doesn't eat, so it, rep it represents the food that we eat. That being the case, we should know that we're not, we don't need to seek the best for ourselves in terms of our material, of our physical survival. That's what food is about. You eat food because you need to survive. Why do we eat? 
We eat so that we should be healthy. We eat so that we can uh, that we can be alive. We don't eat because we take the ultimate pleasure from eating. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have nice food. A korban mincha is beautiful, but it's not the best of the best. It is the almost best. That is what the message is of korban mincha. Lumazos, hamanoyer hatayra, the pure manoyra. What does the menorah represent? The menorah represents the light of Torah. The menorah is the symbol of Torah in the Beis HaMikdash. It symbolizes for us the study of Torah and the observance, the upkeep of mitzvahs of the commandments that are contained in the Torah. In that situation, the Torah wants to underscore the exact opposite of the message that it gives with the Korban Mincha. Do you know what the Torah wants to teach us in this case? What does the Torah want to underscore? What does it want to stress? Whenever it comes to something Ruchnius, It is utterly prohibited for us to compromise in any way, shape or form. We must seek out the best possible thing that we could get in order to achieve that level of spirituality, that level of connectedness with Hashem. We must seek out the ultimate complete version of whatever it is that we are capable of how what is it that we can reach what is it that we can do what is it that we can achieve the ultimate version the cosis is reserved for our spiritual aspirations that's what cosis is about when it comes to this no no you mustn't seek you mustn't say well When it comes to this, I can't spend too much money. No, no. When it comes to this, you must be willing to give everything that you have, whatever you have, in order to achieve that result. Gam imachinu chator. So, for example, he gives a wonderful example. The, in order to achieve the ultimate version of education, you want to educate your child. I know that this is a topic that I discuss often as a rabbi. You want to educate your child. It's not cheap to put your children in a Jewish school that gives the best version of Jewish education. But that's what we need to do. We need to educate our children to be the next generation of good Jews. We need to make sure that we have a future for the Jewish people. That's what we call the Chinuch HaTor. He's just giving one example in the Mikdash HaLevi. There's many such examples, but it's a very good example. Do you know what? It's extremely expensive. It's extremely demanding on our pocketbook, on our wallets, on our uh, ability to pay whatever it is that the schools demand. And we think to ourselves, you know what? Maybe we should, we should make compromises. See, you know, our children don't need the best school. They don't need the best Rebbe. They don't need the best teacher. Maybe we can do with a, with a school that's a bit cheaper. Somehow we can make compromises 
because as long as they're going to a Jewish school or as long as they have a Jewish teacher, it's okay. I didn't spend too... By the way, nobody makes such compromises when it comes to having the nicest meal in a restaurant or going on the most wonderful vacation. But when it comes to a Jewish school, you might say to yourself, I don't need kosis la moir. I don't need that. I'm quite happy with shemen zayzoch, whatever your definition of that may be. Says the Mikdash Halevi, Alonu We must not compromise when it comes to matters such as this. We must always seek out the best that we can find and pay whatever it costs in order for that Torah. That's what the menorah represents. The Torah, which is the kosis la the oil that we use for the menorah, has to be of the purest form. Let's move on to another beautiful piece in the Mikdash HaLevi. The Posuk says, You know that the Kohanim, the, well, initially it was Aaron Akoyin, but later on it was the Kohanim. They would light the menorah every every day. They had to light it less, less in the morning. It was a, it was lit all day, and it was wherever it was lit. It was Me'erev Ad Boiker. It was from the evening until the morning. Lifnei Hashem Chukas Oilam Ladoraisem Es Bnei Yisrael. So you know what? They would come in in the evening. They would light the menorah. Says Rashi, Me'erev Ad Boiker. From the evening until the morning. They lit the menorah. They were the, one of the last things they did in the base of Mikdash every day is the Kohen would come in. He would take a, 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 a candle, whatever it was. He would light the seven lights of the menorah. Me'erev ad Tain la midosa, says Rashi, that you must give the, um, you must give the um, correct amount so that it is that it remains a light from evening until morning. How much is that? It gives the measurement here. We don't use those measurements anymore. But that was the half a lug was the amount that you needed to put in each cup of the menorah candelabra. That's for the winter Tebases in the winter, the nights of Tebes are because they're much longer. The nights of the winter are longer than the nights of the summer because the days are shorter. Therefore, the nights are longer. In fact, they used to use a chazi lug for each and every cup of the menorah um, every night for the whole year. Why? Because. That was what was required for the sh- for the longest nights, so even for the shortest nights, they would put a chatzilug. The imyoiser ein bekach klum. It doesn't matter if there's a bit left over in the morning, as long as we know that they're going to remain me'erev ad boiker. That was what was important. That's what the Posuk says. That's what Rashi wants to teach us, that me'erev ad boiker means that there needs to be sufficient oil there needs to be sufficient olive oil in every single one of the cups of the menorah that's going to last from, from the uh, beginning of the night until the end of the night, until the morning begins. I'll divrei Rashi halolu on these words of Rashi, on what Rashi says to explain the phrase Erevad Boike, Hikshar Abeinu Ephraim Kushyo Chazoko. 
Rabbeinu Ephraim asked a very difficult question. I want to tell you a little bit about Rabbeinu Ephraim. He was, he was a very interesting man. Um, before we continue with the Mikdash Alevi, I'm going to tell you a little bit about Rabbeinu Ephraim. He's, he was known as Ephraim ben Yitzchok Miregensburg. He was a very early Bale, one of the Bale Toysfus, one of those who was from the Talmudim, not directly of Rashi. He was born, in fact, in 1110. You know, Rashi died 1105. Rashi, Rashi was born 1040, died 1105. In that time, the Jews lived on either side of the Rhine. One side is France, the other side is Germany, but those countries didn't really exist in those days. And we're going back a long time. So Rashi died. He had uh, um, daughters, but he had grandchildren. One of them was Rabbeinu Tam. Rabbeinu Tam was a Rebbe of Rabbeinu Ephraim. But Rabbeinu Ephraim was an interesting man. He was quite a difficult fellow. First of all, before I tell you about uh, uh, him being a bit cantankerous, I want to tell you he was a python. Do you know what a python is? Payatan. It means he wrote piyutim. So we, we don't read piyutim all the time, but there are very famous piyutim. There are famous um, uh, aspects of prayer which are read on particular occasions that were written by Rabbeinu Ephraim. He was a brilliant poet. He was a, a brilliant, absolute genius with the Hebrew language, using references, of course, from Tanakh to inspire people through prayers that he wrote. He was extremely bright and he's best known I want to tell you what he's best known for, best remembered for, Rabbeinu Ephraim. He's best remembered for the fact that he was extremely stubborn. He refused to accept any such thing as a post-Talmudic authority. So you know we have this concept that if a Tana says something, an Amoira can't argue with it. And if an Amoira says something, a Ga'on, one of the Ga'onim, can't argue with what an Amoira says. And if a Ga'on says something, then the Rishonim can't argue with the Ga'onim. And if one of the Rishonim says something, one of the Achronim can't dispute, can't debate a Rishon. Now, I don't want to tell you it's a hard and fast rule, but generally speaking, in most cases, in the vast majority of cases, we stick to that rule. That if there are people who want to argue now, nowadays, a Rav who wants to argue with a Rishon, no one's going to take them seriously, because they're Akhronim, and in fact, I think they'd struggle if somebody wanted to argue with a Rabbi Kiva Eger, um, or Rabbi Tzachonon Specht, I think they'd also struggle. But the point is that we don't argue with people who came before us, but Rabbi Ephraim was not into that. Rabbi Ephraim felt that the ultimate in Psak Halocha, the ultimate in halachic authority came from the Gemara. That's where it comes. That's where it originates. Torah Shabbat Peh recorded by Chazal in Talmud. Now, you've got a Rishon or Gon who says something different. Okay, but I can disagree with them. That's their interpretation of the Gemara. I've got my interpretation of the Gemara. I don't have to listen to somebody who came before me simply because he came before me. I don't have to bow to precedent because ultimately... I am in, as entitled to interpret a Gemara in my way as anybody who came before me is entitled to interpret it in their way. And you can imagine he wasn't particularly popular because one of the concepts of Judaism is Masoira, that previous generations have a certain 
we have a reverence for them that we don't, unless it's strictly necessary, we don't automatically dismiss what they say because we, we may think somewhat differently. That is the, the method that we use in the interpretation of Allah. Rabbeinu Ephraim didn't go for that. In fact, even though he was a Talmud and a friend later of Rabbeinu Tam, he would argue with him. And in fact, Rabbeinu Tam once said to him, have you ever conceded a point? He, you know, they got into some argument over halacha and he was very, very difficult. He was very stubborn, Rabbeinu Ephraim. He didn't want to give in. And Rabbeinu Tam got a bit agitated, irritated by Rabbeinu Ephraim's approach. And he said to him, do you ever concede? Do you ever agree that you're wrong? But whatever it is, Rabbeinu Tam remained his friend. There were those who refused to have anything to do with him. And he had to move from one community to another. He's known uh, by the name Regensburg, which is a place where he lived. But he went from one place to another. And he's widely quoted um, as one of the early Rishonim. That's what he is. He was one of the early Rishonim, lived in the 12th century. He died in uh, 1175. I'm going to tell you three interesting Piske Halocha from Rabbeinu Ephraim. In the Hagos Oshri, it says that Rabbeinu Ephraim was uh, at some point, there was a particularly um, controversial Psak Halocha with regard to a fish called the Burbot. You can look it up on Google. B U R B O T. I've got a picture here of a Burbot. You want to see this picture? It's a picture of a Burbot. It's a, a summer somewhere in between an eel and a catfish. Now, today we, we wouldn't even take such a thing seriously. It's not considered kosher. But in those days, there were those who considered the burbot to be kosher. And they asked Rabbeinu Ephraim, is the burbot a kosher fish? And I don't know what inspired him to answer yes, but he, he said... It's fine to eat the burbot. Do you know there's a whole controversy about whether or not a swordfish is kosher? Why? Because when it's young, the swordfish has scales. It certainly has fins. But when it's young, it also has scales. Later on, it loses the scales and the skin of a swordfish becomes smooth. And therefore, there's a machlokas as to whether a swordfish is kosher. Because there are those who say that it needs to have scales throughout its life in order for it to be kosher. There are those who say it doesn't need to have scales throughout its life. As long as at some point in its life it had scales, then it is kosher. Okay. The burbot, it's a fish, has tiny scales. Now, I don't know what that means. I'm not a great expert. You need to ask experts in fish, ask a fisherman to tell you about the burbot as to what those scales look like and whether they are um, they last throughout the Burbot's life, whatever it is. At some point, he was asked the Shiloh, Rabbeinu Ephraim, is this fish kosher? Ugly looking fish, by the way, don't you agree? He said, it is a kosher fish, you can eat it. Anyway, that night he went to bed, had a dream. And in the dream, something appeared to him, a voice, a person, I don't know what it was, and said, you gave a wrong psak today. Do you know that you puskined that a burbot is kosher? It's not. It's treif. You mustn't allow anyone to eat it. He woke up in the morning and he said, no one is allowed to eat burbot ever again. 
That's the story with Rabbeinu Ephraim. It's widely quoted. It's a very interesting psakaloch. It's quoted in Hagoyes Oshri and in many different Svarim afterwards. Another story about Rabbeinu Ephraim. In Sefer Haguda and also in the Rishonim, it adds, it's, it tells a story that Rabbi Yoel, another Rishon of the same time of the 12th century, asked Rabbi Ephraim whether or not you're allowed to put depictions in a shul of birds and horses. So if you, are you allowed to paint pictures inside a shul, on a, let's say on a paroiches, on a sefer Torah, or as a decoration over the Oran HaKodesh? Can you put the figure of a, of a bird? Eagles is very often used in, in a shul or horses. I've not seen that too often, but horses, I guess, is a symbol of power. Whatever it is, he was asked this Shaila. Is there a chashash, Rabbi Yoel asked to Rabbeinu Ephraim, is there a chashash isur because it somehow looks like it's Avodah Zorah? Because what do we do in shul? You've got parechas at the front, or you've got some decoration of the Urna Kodesh over the ark, which is eagles or horses, and you bow down, you say moidim. What does it look like? Looks like you're bowing down to horses. Looks like you're bowing down to eagles. Is that allowed? That's the shaila that Rabbi Yoel asked Rabbeinu Ephraim. And Rabbi Ephraim said, there's no chashash of Avodah Zorah. Avodah Zorah has to be created for the purpose of Avodah Zorah. Just because something has a tzura, it looks, it appears like something that could be Avodah Zorah if somebody wanted to designate it as such, doesn't make it Avodah Zorah. And if there is no intent, there's no interest in Avodah Zorah, and you created a form, a picture, whatever it is, in shul that is of, let's say, an eagle or a horse, that doesn't make it Avodah Zorah simply because that's what it looks like. And you should know that this tshuva is widely used. I just told you, you've seen uh, you've seen a parochis which has depictions of animals on it. I'm sure you've seen a Sefer Torah, the same thing. And over on Arakodesh, there's no problem with it whatsoever. The only problem would exist is if the person who created it, of the shul that commissioned it, wanted that to be an Avodah Zorah, that would be a bit of an issue. And the final thing is about Rabbeinu Ephraim, before we get to the Dvatur about Parshas Tetzaveh, we'll get back to it in a minute, that Rabbeinu Ephraim opposed, I mean, not just opposed, he got very, very angry um, because there was a, a particular minhag, a custom among the Jews of the Rhineland, to allow the, um, the eating of chelev, a fat, that is attached to the stomach in the animal. So you should know something. It's not so relevant to us today because we tend to avoid animal fat nowadays. We use um, vegetable fats. We don't use animal fats. But in those days, people obtained their fat, whatever fat that they used for frying, for cooking. They would get it from animals. And fat was precious. It was valuable. And there's fat attached to the stomach in a cow, so the shechter cow, and all that fat has got, has got value. And there are certain fats which are forbidden in Jewish law, and there's disputes as to what those fats are. There was a group of Jews who said that you are allowed to use the fats that are attached to the stomach. So after shechita, you take the stomach, you detach the fats, and you, those were sold separately, that that was permitted. And he said that that's absolutely forbidden. And uh, he said that 
I cannot believe that any rabbi would have allowed this and just because you have this custom and it exists for a hundred years or however long it existed doesn't mean that it's kosher, it's not allowed. And um, he became uh, a great opponent of the Talmidim of Rabbi Yoel, of Rabbi Yoel who we mentioned earlier. And uh, in fact, he was ejected from the community. He was considered too cantankerous to continue living in the community that did allow this chelev. But nevertheless, he stuck with his guns and he would not allow that particular fat to be eaten. And you should know the Psak Alocha nowadays is Rabbeinu Ephraim's Psak. We don't allow those fats to be used. Again, it may be less relevant for us because we tend to avoid animal fat altogether. But in the days when animal fat was hugely important, this Psak that forbade the use of the chelev attached to the stomach was, uh, was a, a, a considerable prohibition. Let's get back to the Dvatoira, the question that Rabbeinu Ephraim asked on Rashi's Pshat. Rashi said, if you recall, that Me'erav um, Ad means that the Kohen had to put in enough oil in each cup so that uh, there would be enough oil to last all night long. So Rabbeinu Ephraim asks the following question. What exactly is the novelty here? What is uh, Rashi being mechadesh by telling us that you need to put enough oil that's going to last all night? So what's the big deal? That it's going to last in the flame for, uh, from evening until morning. Seeing as we know, I mean, it makes perfect sense that the oil needs to last, the light needs to last from evening until morning. It's obvious that you need to, uh, you need to be able to put enough, or you need to have to put enough oil in the cups of the menorah that it's going to last, that the flame will last all the way through the night. So what exactly is Rashi telling us by telling us uh, that Me'erev Adboika means you need to put enough oil in that it's going to last all night? V'tirutz Rabbeinu Ephraim. Rabbeinu Ephraim gives the following answer. Shahinu alulim lispar shakoinim trichim la'amoid b'cholshah b'somuch l'menoira l'hoisif shemen al-piyatzerich. Listen to this. Fascinating answer. Rabbeinu Ephraim said that you might have thought Me'erev Adboika means that the Koyen, whoever lights the menorah, do you know what his duty is? He needs to stand next to the menorah all night long. He can't leave because in case there's not enough oil at some point, he's standing there with a little jug and he's going to pour in whichever cup is lacking in the amount of oil that it needs, he would pour it in. He's, he's going to watch, he's going to be like a night watchman inside the Oihel Moyed, inside the sanctuary, so that he can check that the lights of the menorah remain alight for all night long. Because he has to make sure that they're lit and they remain alight in the best possible way. That's the duty of the coin. You might have thought that's what Me'erev Adboika means. Listen, look, if you read the possible. Me'erev Adboika. 
and his descendants need to stay there from evening until morning. So Rashi comes to tell you, no, no, it doesn't mean you need to be there, Me'erad Baikeh. All you need to do is to ensure that the oil remains Me'erev Ad Baikeh. So you have to put in enough oil at the beginning of the night that it's going to remain light, Me'erev Ad Rashi. That's the Chiddush of Rashi. Rashi is coming to tell us a bit, it's, a, it's like a, a kula. It's, it's enabling the Kohanim to have a, a normal life, otherwise they need to stand there all night long. It's Alpiya uh, Gemara, the Gemara says, They don't need to do that. All that they need to do is to make sure that when they um, take care of the menorah lighting at the beginning of the night, that there's enough, there is sufficient oil that's going to remain there all night and that therefore the light can remain light. Now, now that he says this, Rabbeinu Ephraim says this, you've got to think to yourself, isn't the answer quite obvious? That means the question on Rashi wasn't really a question because now that we've heard the answer, it makes perfect sense. We know, and we've already said it, that the menorah is meramezes la Torah. It reminds us, it's, it's a symbol of the Torah itself. The menorah is not just the menorah. The menorah, the light of the menorah is there to symbolize the essence of the Torah. So Rabbi Nefraim wants to tell us that there is a specific Chiddush when it comes to the menorah that doesn't apply to Torah. It specifically applies to the menorah. You don't need somebody who is there constantly, who's going to be uh, supervising and ensuring that there is something going on all night long because if it flickers that he's going to pour the oil. You don't need that kind to do that. The beginning of the night it's sufficient. Just put enough oil there so that there's sufficient oil for it to remain alight all night and then you can go off and do what you do and whatever happens, happens. But when it comes to the study of Torah, there's no such thing as a Chiddush like this. This is unique to the menorah. So even though the menorah, that's what Rabbeinu Ephraim is telling you, that Rashi means. Even though when it comes to the menorah, this Chiddush exists, it does not exist when it comes to Torah, the study of Torah, and the observance of Torah. Benagala Torah, when it comes to Torah, anything connected to Torah, we need to behave like the Havamina, like the original idea of Rabbeinu Ephraim, which is, we need to be like the Kohen Godel, the Kohen, who stands next to the Benorah all night long. We need to be the Kohen that should have been, if it wouldn't have said, Me'erev Adboiker. If it wouldn't have said Me'erev Adboiker, we would think the Menorah is like the Torah, and therefore the Kohen needs to be there all night. But Me'erev Adboiker, the Chiddush of Rashi is, Me'erev Adboiker means, it's only that you need to, at the beginning of the night, pour enough oil that it's going to last all night. But when it comes to Torah, that's not sufficient. We must never drop our guard. We must never let go. Mentally, our, our entire focus has to be on Torah constantly. We can't drop our guard ever. 
We mustn't go on autopilot. People who go on autopilot tend to crash when it comes to aspects of spiritual growth and spiritual Torah aspirations. On we need to know that our ultimate aspiration, ultimate what is demanded of us, do you know what we need to do? We need to be on constant guard. We need to be on constant awareness. We need to be constantly available and ready and focused at all times. Imagine that would have been the coin every night in the base of Mikdash. That's what we need to be. We need to constantly look that we will, are going to grow and we're going to advance in terms of our spiritual growth. At every stage of the way, we need to make sure that there is enough oil. We can't just rely that we put in oil. You know, people say, I went to Hebrew school, I went to Jewish day school, I'm okay. And now they're 45, they're 50, they're 60. They haven't opened a Gemara or a Chumash or anything for I don't know how long. And they think to themselves, it's enough. I went to a Jewish school 30 years ago. That's sufficient. No, no, it's not sufficient. It's not enough. You know what it is? We have to constantly be aware that there is enough oil for us to go on. At every stage of our lives, we have to be connected to mitzvahs. We have to be doing the mitzvahs. We have to be worrying about doing mitzvahs. We have to be concerned with the way mitzvahs are being performed. Because you know what? What is the ultimate sustenance of our spiritual souls? It's the performance of mitzvahs. We can't leave that to chance. We can't be doing that on autopilot. We have to be very concerned that we are doing it properly, constantly. We need to ensure that in our lives we are advancing, we are aspirational, we are concerned for the fact that our spiritual growth is taken care of. And only in this way. And only in that way can we be sure that we have carried out that which is required of us in order to achieve our ultimate version of ourselves. We'll leave it here for today. Thank you so much. Thank you.